Welcome back to the Dallas Design Sprints podcast. I'm your host, Robert Scrobe. On today's show, we're featuring Jim Hobart. He is the digital executive and UX strategist for Classic System Solutions. He's been doing that over two decades, and we've had a really interesting conversation about his background, some of the engagements he has, his approach on design sprints, his approach really on UX strategy and engagement. I learned a lot from this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Well, Jim, thank you very much for coming on to the Dallas Design Sprints podcast. I really appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. Let's get a little bit into your background and what you do. I know that in previous conversations, we've kind of explored this a bit in terms of your extensive engagement and work in the consulting space, but why don't you give a rundown of your highlights of your career and kind of where you are today? Sure. I actually got into UX specifically consulting a while ago, starting in actually about 1993. Um, Back then, there were very few UX consulting firms. I think there was like HFI, UIE, which is Jared. Um, And then uh, I worked and was hired by a company called CCI out of Chicago. And uh, that was maybe two, three years. I was pretty much the main consultant. I worked with a lady named Christine Comerford, and uh, she did a lot of uh, speaking, and then I also did a lot of public speaking. And then out of that, um, obviously, there was a lot of engagements. That company actually got sold to a company out of uh, Houston. Uh, We had a a product that we had developed, interestingly, to make requirements gathering uh, faster and do rapid prototyping. So, um, and they bought that the company and that product, and then I actually went out on my own. So started Classic Systems in '96, and have been doing UX and digital strategy consulting ever since. So what's interesting about your background is that I mean you've pretty much covered it all. You've done complex enterprise user experience projects. You've gotten yourself involved with usability testing, design. You've got clients that range mm-hmm. anywhere from Intel and Boeing all the way down to Lockheed and government agencies, Hershey, Tyco. Was it a matter Mm -hmm. of working for one big company and then because you had that experience, it just kind of blossomed into other opportunities as they were made available to you? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think that is somewhat the case. For instance, in the insurance space, uh, we've been working with Progressive Insurance since 94, I think, 93, 94. So everything through, you know, doing training, probably over a thousand people, UI design to, you know, things like prototyping. Um, and obviously a whole lot of companies worked on a lot of their major projects. And then, you know, they were kind of like a tree. So in the insurance space, as an example, many of those executives would go on to other insurance companies or other insurance companies would, you know, just call us and say, hey, whatever you're doing at Progressive, we'd like to, to do that as well. So obviously it worked out um, pretty well. But in other spaces as well, I think in healthcare, we did a lot of work with, for instance, Blue Cross, and then the other Blue Crosses would talk, or we did work uh, with DOD with uh, you know, Seminole Labs, Los Alamos, and then started working on all the other national labs. So definitely a lot of referral. I, I have a kind of a belief now that I look back, uh, at least on, on what we've been doing, that there's there's a, at least a, a stream of work that happens in our field that's very similar to, I would say, like the movie business. So where people know other people, they have a very specific project. And just like when if you're making a movie or maybe, maybe making a song, you're like, who's the best lighting person, who's the best gaffer, et cetera, who's the best person for um, post-editing. And so people would call these people. And, and what I've seen is we would come into projects with other people over and over um, just through that referral network. And oftentimes it was a good impedance match. So we were the right choice 
as opposed to you know doing marketing and and you know, out RFPs and seeing if we want. In fact, I, looking back now after 25 years, I, I was thinking we've only actually filled out done two RFPs. Client didn't know us, you know, it's, they we got a request, we did all this work, filled it out, and then later I found out they'd already made a choice, and we were just kind of a formality. So. After you know, that was a good lesson. I mean, maybe we could have had a lot more work if we'd done it. But generally, what I found is that if we know people clients, or if they don't know who we are, we'll say have a talk with these three or four people, and then after that, it's basically when do we schedule you in and make things happen. So it's been pretty easy that way. Did you find that your referrals were based on a level of trust or a level of familiarity with your work, or both? I think both. We, you know, obviously we're in a space where there was things that, you know, we, we were working on systems. So, um, you know, there's a high degree of complexity. So basically would say, this is the who you want to call. And so we would come in uh, from that space. But generally, we also had someone who was maybe at that at another company where we did work. They would go to a company and, and then they would hear, oh, we have a need for this. And they'd say, I got the person to call. And so that person was, you know, putting their name, I guess, on the line for us to come in, which, you know, for us is important. I mean, that means when we're going in, I know that that person's putting their reputation on the line for us to be there and we need to deliver. And so you know, I take that as an accountability and uh, to make sure that we, in fact, do that. And, you know, luckily over the years, it's worked out pretty well. So how have you marketed yourself? How did you know that you could market your consulting services in the UX space as a way that was diametrically different from other firms or other individuals or companies offering the same type of service? So two things there. First, I never really looked at what anyone else did, okay? I just have very focused on what we do. And um, luckily, you know, just through referrals again, um, I've been able to speak, you know, there's at a lot of conferences. The conferences aren't as kind of big as they used to be. So that's, you know, that's changed a little bit over time. Um, and now they're more niche conferences. But um, so, you know, X and uh, you name it. So there was a lot of uh, large uh, software development conferences that over the years, you know, if you obviously got good ratings and um, you're easy to work with and you had good talks, and people liked you, they, yeah, they'd have you back. And so um, that was another area where at least people would have seen me uh, talk, realized after a little bit of time that we had some pretty unique experience. Um, and then, you know, then through referrals, they would, uh, probably have us come in and do some work for them yeah okay so not a lot of i mean writing i think there's been a little bit i say that um i was wasn't intentionally writing but for instance you know going back if i just look back on you know on what we were doing for work uh you know we started off uh you know doing obviously you know like I say, these consulting gigs. So they'd be one, kind of one-week gigs, and it was value-based pricing. So um, even back 20 years ago, it would be for a week could be $25,000 as an example. So you know, there's kind of a burden on us to 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 deliver. Um, over time, you know, going fast forward maybe 10 years into this in the early 2000s, we discovered prototyping tools like um, Azure. So, and I worked with Victor Sue, who is the owner, uh, creator of Azure, and we developed that further. And then we worked uh, on a, some very big projects and helped in writing a book on Azure prototyping. I'm not sure if you have used Azure or not. Um, obviously, then over time now, we've switched over to things like, you know, Sketch and now looking at Figma. But, um, but that was, you know, there were some things like that where we would either write articles or, you know, help with writing books. 
um, to, to get the word out. But really, it's just been busy working. There's projects, and then if there was a little bit of free time or we had some, some openings, uh, we'd say we've got some availability, and the phone seems to ring, or you know, get email, and we'd figure out if it would work, and then just make it happen. I was an early adopter, actually. I, I worked with it all the way until I think about version four or five. One of the things I was desperately mm -hmm. trying to get the company to do is get more serious about its exporting to requirements, which I saw as like a really key differentiator for them in terms of other people that were entering the prototyping market, but they just never, they never went down that road. Literally being able to take the artifacts that were done in those prototypes and making it so that you could customize the fonts, you could, you could have all the details out there so that you hand it off to a developer and they would have at least the, the beginnings of what they know what to do. Um, so that was, yeah, I, I have pretty extensive experience. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at Azure, that was a little further. So you dumped it kind of before they figured that out. So we were on a really big project, uh, oh, 2010, I think. And um, and so, you know, we had that issue. So there was a, a lot of compliance issues. So you'd put all this stuff into Azure at the time and, and the requirements piece where you actually put out like Word you know, an XML. And the thing I loved was the prototype and the, and the Word document were generated from the same XML source. So you never have the finger pointing where someone documentation and a matched prototype, the working prototype. So, but the, but the output for the specifications was very weak. So we actually worked extensively with them on that on version six and seven to get the requirements output um, much better. And so if you ever pick up, it's probably, it's an older book now, but you know, Azure six, um, it talks all about that. And, and we actually had on making that happen over time uh, with that product. It, they had, they were trying to get it to work on the Mac and everything else. So, you know, but we were creaming the same thing. So uh, I've, I've picked up where you left off and we actually got them to deliver uh, a pretty good output uh, in, in, in fact, out of Azure. If only our paths had crossed earlier, I would have basically told you like, okay, here's exactly what they need to do. But it sounds like you figure it out all the same and work pretty close with them and getting it right. <laughs> You had mentioned value-based yeah. pricing before, and that perked me up because I'm, I'm actually in, in deploying that as well, or at least in that space. When you were trying to gauge what you felt your tiered pricing was, meaning like what you could basically had to charge to cover your costs versus what you felt was at the appropriate value of what you were charging based on some sort of metric, whether it's yearly revenue or something else that, that the company saw as a uh, as a marker for what they were investing in with your company, how did you figure that out? Was it what did you have your mm -hmm. own kind of approach to it every time, depending on the client, or was it kind of the same system for every engagement that you had? It's pretty much the same for every engagement. So we did things like rapid review, which was kind of a package uh, heuristic evaluation. So we had a package price on that. Um, figured out kind of where that fit in. Um, consulting would be package, you know, you get a time, uh, basically a week of my time for a certain amount. For someone that worked for me, there was a, you know, a different price. And as I got really busy, and this is something I guess we'll be thinking about the next, um, you know, year as we scale this and we have more people doing, you know, design sprints, is that, you know, the the principle oftentimes you get overwhelmed, everyone wants you, they don't want the, the person that works for you. So you just kind of see, keep hiking up your price um, so that, you know, you can, you can get me, but you know, for half the price, you can get this person who was trained by me. So, you know, I've used that model and it's actually worked out um, pretty well as well. So when I started the business, just to go, go back to your original question, I was already kind of working at a certain rate. 
So um, when that when the, the consulting company that I had been working for got bought out, they didn't really want part of the consulting. They just wanted the product. And actually, when they bought the product, they killed it because they had a very high-end product. And we were actually um, out basically killing their sales because they would, they would spend a year selling this big enterprise uh, requirements kind of modeling tool. Um, and then we'd say, well, why don't you just use this really simple tool that we built and the companies would actually buy it. So we were killing their sales, bought the, the product and then killed it. And they didn't really want the consulting. So they handed us, I had a nice jumpstart. So they handed me all the consulting groups, uh, clients and, and all that. So I already had a rate. So we were, kind of, that was a, a nice for Obviously that was over 20 years ago, but um, just continued forward from there. And um, generally what I found was, is that, you know, again, if people were looking, we were never, we were pretty much always pretty much at the top end of the, of the price, but price was never an issue. So if a customer didn't know what we did, that was a challenge. Or if they were questioning the price, then they didn't really understand what the value was that we provided. So one of the things that I would say is understand the value that you are bringing as far as driving change to client and make sure that you're not you know telling people but making sure that they're aware of how you are moving and on the converse side if you're there and you're not really moving the needle as a consultant or even internally in your organization you know figure out why and make sure that you're actually working on the right things and that's critical i mean as you know you're your consultant and uh, many times what people bring you in for or what they think is important as you really get into it, and obviously design sprints kind of tease that out, um, the bigger issue may not be, you know, what you originally came there for. So it's your job to figure that out and then prioritize, work with the team, get them aligned, and then execute on the things that will really move the needle. Yeah, the business outcomes that they're eventually after. And I, I agree with you. It's it's having those those conversations with different people to not only get a different perspectives on the the what they're after, but ultimately what the, what may be some core issues that for one reason or another, they're not either paying attention to, or they may not even be aware of. And I think that, you know, here's the thing in UX, we, we, right now we have, we have an incredible opportunity. This is our time because you have to realize executives are looking at what can I, what can I do to move the needle next year? What can I do to really make a difference? And they're realizing when, you know, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't us, it was Apple, it was all these companies who have actually pr have really focused on what does design mean? What does good product, uh, you know, creating great products really mean? And when they've executed on it, you can see it in the numbers. And so when they can understand that they can have that happen within their organization, or they can bring people in who can help them say, hey, there's five ways we can go to, five roads we can go down, but we're gonna be able to run a design sprint and actually really, um, solidify and focus on one that we actually know is going to actually move the needle. Those are high value discussions and, and things that you can actually, you know, bring to the table as a consultant or in terms of your organization. This is a, a wonderful time to be in the field we're at because we, the, the executives are looking for a, to us to actually move the needle and we can do it. Anyone that listening to this, you could actually do that this year in a bigger company. Do you find in the enterprise space in particular, has the conversation changed a little bit less than about UX and more about product and growth in relation to how design is being applied? Last year, I kind of posited that based on what I was seeing, at least on the middle tier, that UX was starting to mature to a state where people knew about it and just expected it to be part of their product. And it was, it was starting to center more on the holistic view of how a product actually fit into the market, how it was meant to perform, what were the projections around growth, and that the, the conversation around the actual design experience 
was was starting to evolve. And I'd like to f- get your take on that because I'm wondering, since you've been in the enterprise UX space for so long, if you're starting to see that same sort of change that at least I was picking up on in the middle of this year. First off, we've never been the company that you come in to say, well, you know, you should move the button over here. This is probably not the right font. Every project I've looked at, you know, and that we've been involved with, I, I look at the holistic view. So, you know, if you're, if you're brought in, you know, to lead design sprints, to, to be a true digital leader, you need to be looking holistically at all the systems and what's actually happening, whether it's the users, the product, et cetera. And then what I do is I look for low points in that overall journey, that overall experience. So that would translate, for instance, design sprint to the map. Now, um, you know, the thing that we maybe have an advantage is we do have, you know, the whole usability component of our business. So we've, we can do heuristic evaluations. We have a usability lab. We can all look, get all the way down to eye tracking if you needed to. But you know, now you're down in the weeds. So stepping up, you know, if you get the 30,000 foot view, you can say, well, wait a minute, here are four areas of huge amount of friction in this overall experience. This is where we're going to focus these low points and really move the needle um, and then align the, you know, the, the actual work around those. And so that's obviously a huge value compared to you know, I, I really improve the product detail page of this, this and that. Um, that, that. That is a given. They're expecting we're going to have a good UX. Um, but even that, you know, so we, so a lot of the work we're doing starts off with strategy and then working with the, um, the development teams on actually implementing that strategy. So how have you been seeing design sprints and the activities that are involved with that? How do you, how, how has the market been for that from your perspective? When I when I first saw you know the, the and read the book and design sprints, I'm like, well, I've been doing this for we've been doing this for like years. Um, what I loved about design sprints was that they it kind of made it formalized. There's some checklists. There's a there's an order. There's a logic, and and they're they've definitely brought in things like you know how they do dot voting, how um, you know, ask the certain you know, certain types of questions at certain times. So they've kind of made a, a better system about what we were doing. Cause again, as we did consulting, a lot of times, you know, we'd be brought in for a week and now we would get brought in for a week, not really knowing what we were going to get out at the end of the week. So we didn't call it a design sprint. They said, Hey, call these guys. Um, they can help you get straight go going in the right direction. And then let's see what, where we take it from there. So, you know, I would get in on Monday kind of oftentimes with not a lot of knowledge about where we were going. And on Fridays, that's, that's, you know, birthday day. So we get to see open the presence and, I'm laser focused here, you know, as far as, you know, how we get to Friday, um, we would have a certain process that we would do. Who are the actors and who are the users and the tasks and, you know, what are the journeys, et cetera. You know, I'd make sure that we got, got, got out of the, you know, got whatever friction points there was out of the way to actually get to that goal. Now, so, so I feel like there's always been a need. This isn't something that people said, hey, this is the idea we need to do it. They've always wanted it. Um, now that it's formalized and, and being more formalized and people are understanding, I think that there is still that need. Now, the thing you want to look at is if you look, especially in the enterprise space, just look at a bell curve of most projects. If you call, you know, 20 companies and said, okay, I, I want to do design sprints. If you just look at a bell curve of their overall project portfolio, most people are, you know, in the top of the bell curve is not doing sprints. That's like the very, very far left, right? So most projects are already in process. Somewhere in process, we've already got requirements. We're going from, you know, from development sprint to development sprint. We're trying to get our next release out. So they're heads down. So I wouldn't say that, you know, that there's this huge demand to say, oh, yeah, we, we want to do design sprints. On the other hand, um, when you work with product managers, they are kind of wondering, well, what would be the next best feature? What do I need to be thinking about in six months? 
So what we're doing is where we help with companies with that, you know, the top of the belt, like get these projects out, how do we help, um, you know, get these, the UX right, whether it's testing or design. But um, we run a second track, so I call it PECSWARE. We'll say, we'll tell you what, you're, you're, you don't want to take the wheels off what you have going. Um, so keep all your projects going. We'll help out with the UX where we can in, in different uh, capacities. Let's run a second track where we're just doing some innovation. So if they're open to that, they're thinking, okay, that's not going to divert everyone from all the work that we already have going that we're already laid on or done, but at least we can run these little innovation um, sprints and make sure that if we make some, need to make some kind of adjustments four months down the road, five months down the road, we can actually make that happen. And to me, that's much more uh, easy. It's much more digestible for organizations to understand. Um, I don't know if you've ever, Robert, if you've ever worked for, with, for instance, with a PMO organization, project management office, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, they'll, they'll go through in large companies and say, you know, well, you know here's what we're doing next year. And there's, there's all this jostling. Right. And so what are we going to get done and, you know, prioritize it and what's in, what's out and how do we get the resources? So then if you just come in and say, well, let's just throw all that off the table. Let's do some different. You're going to piss off a lot of people. So instead say, okay, get that going. You, you know, great. Keep what you're doing. But let's outside of that. Let's just think about if we can get some innovation things going. And if one of these is so compelling, then we might have to go thing back into through the PMO and rejig some of this to actually make that happen. And so to me, that's how we've done it, and, uh, and it's actually been relatively successful. And also you could do the from the B2B angle if you found, it, let's say your pipeline is filled for like the, the coming year because you did your big, big room planning like maybe yeah. in the summer or fall of the previous year and everything, all the budgets are locked. You really don't have any kind of bandwidth beyond what a company may actually fund, then that's the route you would probably have to go is that, they just that the the company itself finds the funds to basically take what you've gotten up from the innovation sprint per se and kind of make that a reality or at least mm -hmm. follow it to a certain stage where they feel like they could invest more into what they're doing. But sometimes it's just being able to provide that space to say everything stays the way it is from the perspective of planning and what you have strategically, but let's have this track that kind of corresponds to a few things that you have in the main track and kind of see where this kind of fleshes out. And it really is this X amount of time commitment and, and uh, resource commitment to make that happen. Like an example, an actual conversation I had last year. So I met with the president of a company and just had met and I said, okay, so how's it going? You know, do you think you're gonna make your numbers this year? Cause he was very, the company was very numbers driven. He says, well, you know, I, I think we're gonna be shy about $10 million. I'm looking for 10 million. And it's a significant number. So I said, so you've got everything in play. Change to make that happen. He says, "I'm not sure." I said, "What are the five things that could could happen that could make you know that could actually make an impact?" And so we kind of listed those on a whiteboard. We had a kind of working, and one of them was a big pain point. He says, "You know, I think we could get. I bet we could get 15 million revenue if we could ever solve this. But this particular problem is it's one that no one wants to ever touch. Right now, this process takes like literally six months." It's, you know, you even bring it up and everyone's the back of their neck bristles. So it's, it's, you know, so, and he even got kind of negative, but he goes, if we could ever solve it, that would be great. So I said, okay, that's interesting. And I thought about it and I said, okay, tell you what, we're going to do, I'm going to propose something. We're going to do a design sprint and, and explain what it is. We're going to take a week and basically get your folks in there and I need your commitment. And I looked him straight in the eye. I said, I need your commitment and help make those decisions. And then at the Friday, if we can actually have something that we think is viable, that actually is going to get yet yeah, that 10 million, 
I need you to do what you need to do. He was president of a bigger company, so he had to go to other presidents and other people. I said, right. I need you to commit to me that you're gonna actually get this to happen because I don't wanna waste my time and I don't wanna waste your time. So I don't wanna do this and say someday we'll do it. So it's not, I know it's not on the, it's not on the plan. I know that it's gonna be friction to get the PMO to, and, and all these other groups to, to abide and get the engineering staff. But if we have something that's really good on Friday, do you think we'll make that number? I need your commitment to you're actually gonna drive it and make it happen. And he said, yeah, let's do it. So anyway, we scheduled it. it. It worked out really well. We actually went from six months to the same process. We got it done and um, and actually got it got it implemented. And there was a huge amount of stuff that, you know, I won't get into the whole details, but there was a huge amount of stuff as you get into sprints that had nothing to do with UX. In fact, most of it didn't have to do with the UX. It had the way they were procuring product, the way they were doing contracts, everything. And so one thing I will tip, I will say for enterprise UX that they don't really talk about, you know, in, at the, in the masterclass and other things I've seen is I realized and as you're sitting, you have to realize like, what's going to make this sprint actionable. And this company was very numbers driven. So this particular sprint, what I did is I actually had a person who was from the finance side and I had them work working on the sprint to come up with a financial model. So that at the end of Friday, not only do we have a working prototype that we usability tested, but they had a financial model that proved it out. Um, I didn't want to have this because what, what I was concerned was we'll have this great thing and they'd say, yeah, but how much money are we really going to make? And to me, remember, the whole agreement was we think we're going to make 10 million out of this. And so they modeled it and we had a working model that proved, you know, with a pretty good hypothesis that, you know, if we actually built this, um, that we were going to make the 10 million. So it also cost justified it and, and it kind of greased the wheels to make it happen. So anyhow, just a tip. But as you're as you're in there as a facilitator, you know, running the design sprints, constantly think to yourself, you know, we're working really our tails off. And how many of these, pro you know, is this project, what's going to take to actually make it go into, you know, into fruition and actually get done so that they can execute and make sure that you have the tools and the people and, the, and everything in place so that when you finish up, it actually gets built. Did this person that was working on the financial aspect of this particular endeavor did they work mm -hmm. on their own time and they just had to basically, they, they, had, they were given some sort of deliverable to hit by the end of say Wednesday or Thursday, or did they work alongside with the team and understanding what they were building and, and, and driving towards that would influence the numbers and what they were, what they were estimating? Yeah. Good. Great question, Robert. So no, they were there from the beginning. You know, it was interesting too, because um, it was a lady and you know, she was very sharp with her numbers, but it was kind of awkward. Like for instance, I remember, um, uh, when we did the crazy eight sketches and then we you know went into the final sketches and we did dot voting i remember like <laughs> in her sketches and she was pretty powerful in the organization as far as you know where she stood etc but like i remember her one of her you know none of her sketches got any dots it was kind of this awkward moment because i feel like no one voted for my stuff but you know but she that she wasn't there but i really wanted her there to understand why we were doing it, to hear the empathy, hear the user interviews, hear and see the passion everyone else was putting into it and know that her stuff was absolutely, if she had to come up with these models, it was absolutely critical to the team to make that happen, right? Not three months from now, we'll do some modeling and do some finance stuff. So absolutely, she was part of it. And, and you know, and I worked through the issue of, you know, not getting a lot of votes. And, and part of it was, it was hard to, you know, and Jake's talked about this, you know, it was kind of hard to read some of the writing and stuff. So it has nothing to do with necessarily the design. Um, but that's that's the reality. And so, you know, when when you're working on your projects, whether it's with a startup or large organizations, think about when we're done, you know, what's it going to take to actually, you know, get this thing out there? You know, we don't want to just spend the next year doing design sprints, of which, you know, one out of 20 actually got built. We want to see, you know, 19, 20 out of 20. 
Yeah, the, you have to look at the holistic view of the entire thing. Uh, one of the things that I've seen is, the, and I see it as an Achilles heel of the process, is that you really feel really great about all the work that was done during the week. And there's this notion that you can do an iteration sprint, you can refine it and everything else. But then there's the notion that things right. are just going to take care of themselves after it's all said and done, whether it's putting into an, an, an agile framework where you start off with sprint zero, or you start putting it through the, um, the feasibility, desirability, and viability model where you try to figure out there's an actual business case to move it forward. I think the greater conversation needs to happen, like you, you gave the example of, of what this entire thing looks like from soup to nuts on a strategy perspective. So that when you get yeah. out of that week, that's really only part one of five. So that's maybe like the middle tier. And then really what you're talking about is the, like you had people within the spring talk, thinking about the, the financial aspects of things, probably the strategic aspects of things. What are you talking about in terms of a dev resource commitment as well as like a, an overall implementation of a strategy and how where, where other departments get involved? It, it really does need that holistic view for it to, basically makes sense. Otherwise, it's an exercise in understanding how to, to be more efficient with your time and with your resources and getting project work done. But you absolutely need to get to have the bigger picture in mind. And sometimes it takes more than one person to, besides the desire to kind of hold that. What I looked at was, okay, where's the friction? What, you know, we can do this, but what's going to, even if I get this, you know, the, got the president to say, hey, I'm going to, but I need to give him some legs to, you know, and some people to, to support him, right? So the other area, I knew at this particular company, there, there was a huge amount of friction from engineering. They're already overwhelmed. They have too many projects. Um, everything was taking too long, blah, 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 right? And then, you know, and then if to spread, you know how it is, these big companies trying to get an estimate what this would actually take to implement and then getting it, you know, teed up so it can actually be in a, in a development sprint and everything. You know, now you, all of a sudden you've thrown two, three months of develop, delay, right? So what I did, the other thing I actually got and did some alignment and got a, the, this very, very senior um, architect, uh, engineering architect at Design Sprint. And I told him maybe mid, mid I want to say maybe the end of the first day, because first he's, why am I even here? I don't sketch and blah, 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 right? I said, no. And I said, by Friday, I need an, an entire, um, you know, very pretty detailed engineering estimate of what this is going to cost, whatever we come up with to implement. And then as we as we went through the sprint, he got you know obviously more engaged. He understood that he was part of this. He was building it. And I remember talking to him on Thursday night, and I said, you know what, this is super important to have this the, a solid engineering estimate of what this is really going to take to build. It's pretty complex. That there's no one who knows more about what needs to be done than you. And it just was quiet. And he looked at me and I said, so you're the guy. And I need it tomorrow. And we need it tomorrow, right? And he delivered. And he had a really good detailed, incredibly detailed estimate. Um, and again, that could have been another two or three months. So just kind of look with your projects and figure out. And I'm not saying you're always going to get the head architect, et cetera, in these, in these design sprints. But if you can look at where there's going to be friction points, especially in large companies, to move forward and try to alleviate that and then bring that energy into the sprint. So, so he, he, he wanted to get it built. By, the, you know, by Friday, he wanted to see this happen. And, and then he, and he actually came up with two options. Here's option A and option B. Um, and then, you know, we went through and, and did that. But that's a far cry from here's a sprint and let's throw it over to wall engineering and see if they, when they have time, they're going to give us an estimate. On the voice projects I've been a part of and they were developer centric, <clears throat> I had that same resistance, at least on the first couple, the first day uh, where they just didn't mm -hmm. understand what their role was. But 
as it became clear, what was in, very interesting for, from when I facilitated those was the amount of work they did outside of the sprint with the assumption that they were preparing either the, the test environment or uh, like the process of basically getting everything ready for this, this thing to live in, whether it was the databases or the, mm-hmm. the, code, the code base or anything like that. And it, unless, it, unless it was explicitly stated, they would volunteer their time outside of what they were normally doing at work to get it done. So it clued me into the idea that, mm-hmm. to, like you're saying, give, some, give someone something to shoot for by the end of the week that would prepare everyone for an extended conversation of where it goes. And especially with that voice, that voice tech we were working on, it, it proved to be a, a real conversation mover. It basically moved the needle forward with people that were looking at uh, investing more time and energy towards uh, a particular initiative, especially if somebody who was senior to a certain extent that was part of the sprint could vouch for it and say, look, I, I experienced this. This is where I think it could go. Here are the options we have. So yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I definitely align with that entire approach of getting advocates for what they experience in that particular week. For you in particular, going up into 2019, what are you looking forward to? Like, what, what's, what are some things that are on your mm-hmm. plate in the first couple of quarters? What are you looking to do uh, more with design sprints? Are you experimenting with the model? I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you have planned? Oh, great question. So a couple of things. First off, you know, how to kind of run those two tracks, those parallel tracks? How do we allow for design sprints to, to deal with the ideation and, and, and then that interface with both product management? So they understand, okay, here's your roadmap. Because you realize that most product managers in, in large companies, at least they've, already, they've got a roadmap usually you know, at least a year, 18 months out. So you know, how do we actually influence that and help them to dial that in? Um, and also, you know, I also want to look at how we hand off the output of sprints for execution within the enterprise again with both developers. So I think that right now, um, what I'm seeing even in, in some of the, the like the masterclass material and other people, we have these really detailed pixel perfect, um, you know, outcomes on Friday. I actually disagree with that. I think that, you know, the sprint should validate the concept, but I think that, it, you know, I, I, we actually... I like, in fact, I saw that I think Matus is, I don't know his last name, but he just put together that, that, um, that framework in, in Figma. He just posted on, on, uh, on the Facebook group um, where it's just kind of black and white. We tended to do that a lot because what I, you know, what I've seen is people get a false sense, uh, sense of uh, completion. They think it's all done because it's all beautiful and there's, there's great colors and it looks nice. And then you tend to miss a lot of stuff. I've been doing this a long time and we're far from perfect. And so I like to stay at a lower level of fidelity and work through exactly how things should be working, make sure that we've aligned on, you know, the big issues we're actually trying to solve. And then subsequent sprints, you can add the, the detail. But I found that if you add it, the detail too, too soon, you can overdevelop the prototype and you'll miss key things later. And that's super expensive once you're in the engineering phase. And, and we did this with Azure too. There's nothing to do with Figma or Sketch or any of these. You know, if you get really good at any of these tools, it's easy. It's an easy trap to fall into to just, you know, make it a little better, make it a little bit more interactive, add a few more colors. And next thing you know, you've, you've made it look beautiful, but you missed some. And so, you know, how, what's the level of fidelity that we need to add um, to this prototype to take the next step? Then what do you, what's the level we need to be able to hand it off to development so that, that there's not a big gap there? Um, and like I said, you know, I was working on this 
10 years ago with Azure. We worked on it with, with you know, Sketch. We use Zeppelin to do handoff of assets and, and other tools there. And then, you know, now I'm looking at Figma and seeing, you know, is, is there some ways we can actually improve the game even with that tool? And the third thing is um, remote prototyping and facilitation. So I know you're obviously, and I really wish I could have been part of that remote sprint. I was over in, you know, working over in Europe and, and uh, doing, doing design sprints over in, in, in Denmark, and then I was down in Italy and all different languages. And so I just, it was, it was too much of a stretch to, to try to do that the same week you were doing your, your remote design sprint. But congratulations if I doing that, and thank you for doing it. But that's a huge thing, obviously. Um, you know, I, I, I moved out of the Silicon Valley about seven years ago. I kind of, you know, I think that the world's going to be a lot more, uh, doing a lot more remote work. And we actually had gone vacation up here where I am now on, on this. And I said, I want to live in this lake. And so we moved and seven years and it's been great. But obviously uh, that means we still have to do work. And the more we can do it remotely and not have to fly um, is, is wonderful. I think that uh, so remote facilitation uh, and how to do it well, it's been tough for me. I mean, literally I have, um, you can't see me, but I have a, I've got my two million in my old card just on United. I've got another one from uh, from Southwest. I've flown a lot over the years. Um, but um, kind of where, you know, where, where if we can do some of the stuff remotely and create that same in-person experience, um, that would be great. I'm also looking at how we can bring in uh, remote prototyping. Um, and our staff, for instance, we have, you know, some great prototypers, but it's, it's a tough, this is a tough business. If you're trying to do, you know, for instance, two-week sprints, that means, you know, flying person, a lot of our work's on the East Coast, so flying a person out to the East Coast, you know, and then they'll look at me. They'll look at me, I mean, Wednesday, Thursday, and, you know, they're, they're tired, and they're thinking, you know, I don't like traveling, and I'm working, and they're working on this prototype, and they're thinking, I could do this, I could be doing this from my house. Why don't I, am I here in New York City or wherever? So, um, you know, can we bring in remote prototypers and have them even be more effective than, than on, on site? And I think that will make for... Um, better retention of prototyping skills and people, and also happier prototypers. So again, we don't want to we don't want to do something that's going to jeopardize the overall goal. And one of the things that speaks to your history is that you're very probably very very good at face to face engagement and conversation and recognizing and, and understanding the tone in a room. So maybe there's something for your yes. particular path that's something where you don't necessarily completely go on the remote route. But you have that initial engagement where they get to know you front of on a human level, face to face, and then the rest of the engagement can be from mm -hmm. a perspective where someone's in a different, a different side of the world, but they still know what you're about and who you mm -hmm. are. Um, <clears throat> so two of the things that may yeah. correlate with what, what you were talking about is that there's going to be another remote sprint in April, another event like this, but this is going to be the official one. Um, it looks like it's going mm -hmm. to take on two different tracks. One is going to be for charity. So a lot of local and national charities would be the subject for the challenge where you, uh, like say for the Austin one that Lee Duncan has, has got himself involved with and Bill Lexi and all those guys, they're basically creating an mm -hmm. app for uh, disaster recovery. Um, I think it's disaster uh, recovery. Um, like, uh, I forget the name, the official name, but <clears throat> essentially going down that route with working with local charities and the other is kind of like a hackathon style contest where people who are very competitive or have a competitive streak can use the design sprint process to build the best possible uh, like prototype or example that would meet a challenge and that there would be some sort of either prize or notoriety or something that corresponds to that. That's at least from the feedback that I had gotten from the last time. And then the other mm -hmm. thing is, is that there's the, the beginnings of a referral network, which is gonna be based on um, 
direct experience with practitioners as well as trust networks, or at least the concept of trust networks. So that's, there's, I'm just in the middle of finishing up an article that I'm sending out this weekend so that the, the people that had worked on the original Design Sprint Challenge can take a look at that and see if it strikes true to them and if I documented their effort appropriately. So between those two things, it align, especially through the referral network, um, I'd be keen to get your perspective on it since that's something that you're kind of playing in that space next next year, where can you basically do kind of the remote work and still bring a quality to the, not only the, the, the work, but also the experience and the relationship that you have with clients. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, going back to what I was saying with it, you know, that our, our business was kind of based on that, um, you know, and, and based on similar, if you look at, you know, again, the music, music business, the movie business, those are, those are referral networks, right? So we're going to do a movie and it's who, you know, and, and people make these connections. And so if we can, if we can help facilitate that, um, I think, you know, for our business, that would be great. It would allow us to scale. And, and I think people would find the swimming lanes that they're best in so that we could put together, not just who's available, who will get on a plane, but you know, who's the best person for this particular gig. Yeah, and, and yes. my hope is is that it allows businesses like yours and Bill's and other folks that have, that hold the business relationship or are very good at kind of generating interest in in on the consulting side with the kinds of things that design thinking and design sprints can do or or basically that process is being able to give you a network mm -hmm. of people that are trusted by others that kind of fit the 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 the, the problem or at least the opportunity that you're looking to basically fill with with uh, professionals and have that at hand so that mm -hmm. it, it allows you to expand a bit beyond uh, bringing on full-time work or taking on or, or just basically mm -hmm. having a narrow not narrow but just like a, a certain limit in terms of how much how much you can take on um, it basically giving you mm -hmm. options in terms of who you can actually reach out to for for assistance with kind of doing those types of sprints remote or otherwise yeah, no, I think that sounds great. And, you know, like I said, you know, we've got, you know, along both our clients expect certain things of us and then I expect certain things of people on our teams. So they're very intense weeks, um, you know, so, you know, I don't know how you're going to be you know, setting it up, but, you know, are, are the, the people going to be able to, when they're on a sprint, I know like when I, when I go on the road doing this for a long time, um, I'm laser focused on the client and what we're gonna get done that week. And so we wanna have obviously people on our team that, that they know when they sign up and work with us, you know, when they're in our employees and stuff, but when you're there, you're there. Yeah, I can't, I, can't, I think probably been 10 years since I actually took a phone call. I literally don't take phone calls and um, it's just a different world. So, but that's expected. So uh, as we, you know, go forward with this, and it's interesting, will we be able to have that level of uh, focus that level of execution when we're doing it remotely. Um, and, and the goal will be in fact that yes, in fact we will. And I'm in, I like in the end, what you said earlier is definitely how we work. We definitely, um, you know, we'll go out there, we'll start working with clients and if I'm out there um, and then they'll do follow-up sessions. And sometimes, especially, in, you know, if they're East coast or in Europe or, you know, Asia or something, um, we'll just do calls. And so we'll, we'll do follow-ups. Um, via Zoom, et cetera. They, they know how we work, et cetera. So that's a, kind of a model that you know we're used to, and I want to see that grow uh, going into 2019 as well.
I think it will. I think it's just a natural progression of the, not only the tech, but also the notion that that remote working can be done effectively, given that there's certain expectations are hit on both sides and people know what they're getting into. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. We just set the tone. So, you know, it's funny. Um, one is, you know, when you say value-based pricing, there's a couple things at work. One is that, you know, when you, when you have, a, you know, when there's, when the company's spending a lot of money, plus, you know, you, we should really take design sprints very seriously in that, you know, it's not that way. Hey, we get this cool thing and, and it's done on Friday and that was really a lot of fun. Just think from the company's perspective, they may be spending, you know, if they move forward with this sprint, you say, oh, let's go ahead and build it. They may be spending 10, 20, 50 million so one of our clients we worked with, it was, a, I think, a 300 bucks. So they're going to spend a lot of money. Plus, they're not spending it on something else. So there's some ability on our side that as we're doing this and as we're, you know, working people through maybe the first week and second week, um, and then as these projects go to fruition, that, you know, we need to be doing our job and, and really making sure that we're on the right things and that we're really moving the needle because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, they're going to build this and even let's say you get it done, right? I mean, everyone's probably seen a project where, you know, it was thought about, talked about, built, and you're like, well, I don't know, it didn't really change sales, you know, at all, or it didn't really drive the engagement we thought, well, you know, who's accountable for that? So these are the key thing is that there, you know, there's five ways you can go, which is the way we should go. And then how certain are we that this is actually going to work? It doesn't mean we're going to hit the ball every single time, but we should be moving the needle and we should be really improving our odds by doing this. And that's how we're actually going to, I think, as a, as a group and, and as professionals, we're going to be looked at and judged over time. Yeah, and I really think that some for some designers that are, are oriented towards business outcomes, because there are some out there, like I used to work with someone at Saber that was very much about market impact and understanding business numbers and revenue and market share and all those things, analytics. There, if for people that are naturally inclined mm -hmm. to do that, really encourage designers and practitioners to start delving into this space because eventually it's going to be something that they're going to have to address, whether they become a consultant full-time or even working with consultants and being able to speak that language on that level. Um, I, 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 kind of push back on the notion that people can get romantic just about the process and assume that it's just going mm -hmm. to be the, the silver bullet that, that hits everything. You really got to understand like the, the, the overall spectrum of, of how this process kind of feeds into that business conversation that you've been making a living on in, in terms of kind of showcasing the value of what you bring mm -hmm. and also the kinds of uh, processes that you put it forth to kind of get your clients to where they need to be. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's a tool in our toolbox and that's, that's, that's what it is. Right. And so use the tool when it makes sense, when it doesn't, you know, then don't, there's plenty yeah. of other ways, but you know, ultimately we're, we're supposed to be driving change. And as I said, this is an awesome time to be in this field because we can actually move the needle, but we have to make sure we're working on the right things. It doesn't mean checking off boxes in a checklist, right. And getting through four days. It means really being open. Like when I got in, oh, just one last thing I'll say, you know, when I got into going back to that one, I was talking about a year ago worth we did with that president of the company, I got into it and, and it opened up this rat's nest. They're contracting, they're making, they're signing the wrong contracts. That was nothing to do with what I thought we were getting into. But you know, it was like, this is, this is like the biggest problem. So I, I go, okay. So I took another couple more people and I said, okay, your job is to re redo the entire way you're, you're contracting all your business. With all these, you know, and this is in the travel space, so with all the hotels and on and on and on. And it made a huge difference, but they were like, oh, you know, really? Right now? I'm like, yep, this is what we're doing. 
Because you know what? If we can make the beautiful UI, but if you don't deal with this, then we're wasting our time. We're all wasting our time. So really be focused on outcomes. And I learned that, you know, early on in my consulting career, you know, I just was really blessed to work with some, you know, been blessed to work with great companies. And, I, and as you know, as a consultant, you get to learn from each of your clients. And <laughs> literally every time we were working on a project, progressive you do some executive someone would come to the room you'd have some idea and they'd say and how does that help us sell more insurance and if you didn't have that if you didn't couldn't really articulate that pretty quickly you know like we're wasting our time so you know and and obviously they've driven a lot of innovation at that particular company but at the end of the day they're answering themselves how does that help us? if people want to find out more about what you do and uh, you know your company and kind of what you're offering where, where should they go online Okay, so obviously our website is classicsys.com. As I said, we don't do a whole lot of marketing, so but there is um, there's case studies and and lots of articles that are written over the years. Um, uh, I'm also on the Enterprise UX group on LinkedIn. You can find things there, and I've actually just started writing a few articles. I wrote an article on Medium uh, about design sprints. Are they the next silver bullet? So you'll have to read that to find out what my answer is. Excellent. Well, James, thank you very much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. It was great talking to you. Thanks, Robert. It's a pleasure to talk with you as well. Take care. Thanks again for listening to the Dallas Design Sprints podcast. If you have a question or comment about what you heard on today's show, email me direct at robert at dallasdesignsprints.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Pinterest. Just do a Google search for Robert Scrobe or ask a friend and see if they know. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.